pray together. Lord, what a gift of grace it is to know you as our shepherd. The care and provision and protection you give your people. What an even greater joy to know you as our Father in heaven cares for your children, does what is best for your children at all times. Your mercy and goodness are following us every single day, no matter what the day is like. Your mercy is there for us. And so we are thankful that your name is a strong tower that we can run to and be safe and even feel safe from whatever enemies are around us or whatever things are coming at us. We can rest in you and trust that you will keep us. Lord, and you will never turn us aside or forsake us. You will never cast us out. We belong to you now forever. And we are safe in your care. Lord, I pray for anyone who is here today who doesn't know you as their Lord and their Savior and their Shepherd and their Father. Lord, that even today they would enter a relationship with you through Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. I know a man named Sam who moved from Brookings, South Dakota to Minneapolis Here's what happened to him soon after he got there. Many of you know, shortly after we moved here, my wife Vicki was mugged and her purse snatched. But many of you have not heard the story of the time a man put a chain around my neck, stabbed me, and I lost two teeth. Later, after being released from medical care, the physician called me and asked if I had recovered feeling in my face. Yes, why? He had noticed that I had been cut right along a nerve in my jaw and it could have left a portion of my face paralyzed. So we probably hear that and think, wow, that is really bad. But our response changes when we find out that Sam is simply describing a trip to the dentist to get his wisdom teeth out. What seemed like a harmful experience was actually designed for his good. And our text for today reminds us that God designs our suffering to accomplish good things in his life. If you have your Bible, please turn with me to Job 33 as we continue our study in this Old Testament book. Since it's been a few weeks, let's review where we've been so far. Job is really suffering. He's lost almost everything he had. He's lost seven sons and three daughters and he's lost his health. He is tormented day and night with painful boils all over his body. And so the question is, why are all these bad things happening to him? Job's three friends are convinced that it's happening because God is punishing him for some big sin in his life. Job insists, no, he is innocent, and says that God has no good reason to treat him so harshly. And then in chapters 32 through 37, we hear from Elihu. He tells the three friends that their explanation is inadequate. And then he calls out Job for saying that God has wronged him and owes him 
and explanation. In the verses we'll look at this morning, Elihu provides us with one of the reasons why God brings suffering into our lives. So if you're in Isaiah or Job 33, let's look at 14 and 15. Indeed, God speaks once or twice, yet no one notices it. In a dream, a vision of the night, when sound sleep falls on men while they slumber in their beds, then he opens the ears of men and seals their instruction. So Job had complained that God was keeping him in the dark. And Elihu tells him and us, God is not silent. He communicates with us. For example, he speaks through dreams and visions, and there is a design in his message to people. So 16 again. He opens the ears of men and seals their instruction. Why? That he may turn man aside from his conduct and keep man from pride. He keeps back his soul from the pit and his life from passing over into Sheol. So God's purpose is that he may turn aside man from his conduct or deed. So people are going astray. They're heading the wrong way. And God speaks to turn them around. God warns them they're going the wrong way. And God's goal is to keep man back from pride and by doing so keep a man's soul back from the pit of destruction and death. And that phrase of the pit keeps showing up. Look at verse 24. Deliver him from going down to the pit. Verse 28, he has redeemed my soul from going to the pit. 29 and 30, behold, God does all these oftentimes with men to bring back his soul from the pit. So the danger that is being warned against is destruction and death. And God is speaking to prevent that mercifully by warning us of the danger of pride. The problem with pride is not just that it's annoying to us, but that it's offensive to God. Proverbs says pride goes before destruction, not just before a fall, not just the other team that brags how they're going to beat you. They lose. That's nice. That feels good. But destruction, something much bigger. Or James 4, 6, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Pride puts us on the wrong side of God. He resists the proud, and will humble them. In Isaiah chapter 2, God says this in verse 12. For the Lord of hosts will have a day of reckoning against everyone who is proud and lofty and against everyone who is lifted up that he may be abased. Verse 17, the pride of man will be humbled and the loftiness of men will be abased and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. But even though God warns people about pride and instructs them into the right way to go, verse 1 says, no one notices it. Men do not perceive it. God's message doesn't get through to the human heart. And so he uses another way to communicate. Verse 19, 
man is also chastened with pain on his bed and with unceasing complaint in his bones. So you see the connection? God speaks in dreams and visions and communicates in other ways, and he also speaks through pain. Chasten means to correct by punishment of suff- or suffering. Chasten suggests any affliction or trial that leaves one humbled or subdued. Psalm 94, 12 says, Blessed is the man whom you chasten, O Lord. So God uses pain to get our attention. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Problem of Pain. Probably the most famous quote from that book says the human spirit will not even begin to try to surrender self-will as long as all seems to be well with it. But pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. So think of the check engine light on your dashboard. Maybe you've all had that go off on you. When it goes on, it tells you something's wrong. You're going to want to check out what the problem is and get it corrected. And pain is sort of like that warning light on the dashboard. It alerts us to the possibility, at least, that something is wrong and needs to be addressed. It might be pride. might not have anything to do with pride. It might be something totally different than that. But it just whatever it is, it, there might be something that needs to be changed in our lives. And we might come across that simply by reading our Bible or reading a solid book. But sometimes some kind of pain is necessary to get us to pay attention. And so we could say, at least addressing believers specifically, suffering is not God punishing us for sin, like Job's three friends assumed. Suffering is God protecting us from sin. God's purpose is not retribution, but rescue. His design in our pain is not to harm us, but to prevent or heal spiritual conditions that would harm us. He is not like a harsh judge. He is like a wise surgeon. So here are some examples in the scriptures of God using suffering for good purposes. Let's start with Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4. We'll start at verse 28. All this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king 12 months later after Daniel had interpreted a dream for him. He was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. The king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? So Babylon was great. It was the largest city in the world of its time. And Nebuchadnezzar was ruler over the largest empire in the world up until that point in history. Nebuchadnezzar basically says, the reason Babylon is so great is because I'm so great. And I want everybody to know I'm so great. 
So Nebuchadnezzar had been warned in dreams and visions that pride was a problem. That's what happened in the chapter before this. He had a dream. Daniel interprets it says, you're proud and you're going to be cut down to size if you don't turn. God gives him a year and then a year later still hasn't been corrected. And so let's what, read what happens. 31 through 33. While the word was still in the king's mouth, so right after he said, the glory of my majesty, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you is declared sovereignty has been removed from you and you will be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled and he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. So it's pretty humbling to go from being the most powerful ruler in the whole world to eating grass like a cow. And I remember when we preached on Daniel about four years ago or whatever, you know, his kids asking their mom, where's dad? Well, he's outside. Isn't he coming in for supper? Uh, well, no, he's staying outside for supper. He's going to eat grass today. So that's just a very humbling situation. And after that ordeal, this is what happens. At the end of that period, remember seven times, seven, possibly seven years, seven months, we don't know, but there was an appointed amount of time. At the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth, including me, are accounted as nothing. But he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? Verse 37, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are true and his ways just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. So it worked. It worked. And so Nebuchadnezzar writes a letter to the whole world because he wants to tell everyone what God what this story was about. So look at verse 1 and 2. This is how the story begins. Nebuchadnezzar, to the, the king of all people's nations and men of every language that live in all the earth, may your peace abound. It seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High God has done for me. Not, this is what God did to me, might be what we would have expected. God did this to me. He says he did it for me. 
He's not bitter about the trial he had to go through. He knows it was for his good. He sees it as a mercy that his proud heart was humbled and that he now knows that God alone is worthy to be exalted, not himself. So that'd be one example. Suffering in Nebuchadnezzar's life, but it's for the reason of humbling him so he has a better understanding of who God is. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Let's just read verse 8. For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. Now, why does Paul want us to know how bad his affliction was? We know Paul's not a complainer. He's not a whiner. He's very tough. He's not looking for pity, that we feel sorry for him. He's not boasting that I was so tough I made it through this. The reason he's writing is that he wants us to learn from his experience so that we don't have to learn the same lesson he had to learn the hard way. So he says, we were burdened excessively. In other words, it was overwhelming. It was too heavy to carry. It was more than we could take. And maybe you feel like that in some of your trials. He adds to that, it was beyond our strength. We were unable to deal with it. It was beyond our ability to handle. We just can't do this. It's too much. Maybe you felt that way. In fact, it was so severe, we despaired even of life. In other words, we gave up hope that we're going to live through this. We're not going to make it. This is it. It's over. That's how bad the trial was. So why did God design for Paul to go through such an overwhelming trial? Keep reading in verse 9. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. There's the purpose statement. We went through this trial. Why? So that you learn how to trust God, not yourself. God sent an overwhelming trial to turn them from self-reliance and self-sufficiency and to learn what they couldn't learn just through a book or through a talk. They had to learn through experience. The only way is trust God. So with the benefit of hindsight for them and for, with the benefit of having the scriptures in front of us, we could say God had a good and wise purpose in that Great affliction. They maybe didn't know it at the time, but now they realize it was in order to teach us to trust God, not ourselves. And then go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Verse 7. 
says, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, and he's referring back to his experience in verse 4 where he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. So he's talking about being caught up into paradise, this amazing experience. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. We don't know what Paul's thorn was for sure. And it's actually better that we don't. One of the guesses is malaria, for example. So let's say, okay, I've had to go to places where malaria is a real thing, and I've had to take malaria medicine. I've met people who've gotten malaria. So if I ever get malaria, boom, I'm going to land on God's grace is sufficient for malaria. Well, most of us aren't going to have to deal with that. But by keeping it vague, keeping it unknown, we can plug in whatever thorn in our life, and know that this is true for us. It's not specific to thorn, malaria or whatever Paul's thing was. It's universal for God's people. Whatever it was, it was probably something physical, because he calls it a thorn in my flesh. So that sounds it's like it's physical. It's something very painful. He used the word, it's, it's not like a little teeny rose thorn. It's like a great big thorn, like the crown of thorns that Jesus had on his head kind of thorn. And it was something prolonged. Paul tells us a few verses earlier, he's been dealing with this thorn for 14 years. But notice the language he uses. There was given me a thorn in the flesh. So who gave it to him? Paul didn't give it to himself. Nobody would give it to themselves. So who gave him this painful thorn? This is from Jerry Bridges. God had a beneficial purpose in giving the thorn to Paul. And it was God who gave it, even though it was given through the instrumentality of Satan. Satan certainly had no interest in curbing Paul's temptation to pride, he would have wanted just the opposite. As in the case of Job, Satan undoubtedly wanted to drive a wedge between Paul and the Lord. He wanted Paul to turn against God. But just as God and Satan had different purposes in the affliction of Job, so God and Satan had different purposes for Paul's thorn in the flesh. Listen very carefully. God never allows pain without a purpose in the lives of his children. Let me say that again. God never allows pain without a purpose in the lives of his children. In the north room where Sunday School in Awana is held, there's several different posters hanging up, and one of them says, God gives no unnecessary suffering. No unnecessary suffering. He never allows Satan or circumstances or any ill-intending person to afflict us unless he uses that affliction for our good. 
God never wastes pain. He always causes it to work together for our ultimate good, the good of conforming us more to the likeness of his son. So God's purpose in giving Paul this painful thorn or us a painful thorn is preventative medicine. It's designed to keep us from the dangerous disease of pride. God, in his perfect wisdom, knows that's what Paul needs for his spiritual well-being. And so Paul continues in verse 8 and 9, concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. So Paul didn't just say, I can handle it. He's like, God, please take this away. Please take this away. Please take this away. Probably extended seasons of prayer, not just three little phrases. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. So there was something more important than Paul getting relief from his thorn. I mean, that's a legitimate request. Lord, this hurts. I've had it for 14 years. Could you please take it away? And God says, that's not the most important thing for you right now. Or I'm being tormented, literally buffeted. I'm like being beaten up by a messenger of Satan. So some demon is just hammering him for 14 years. Isn't that a valid request? Lord, could you please stop this? Make it stop. I'm not do this anymore. And God says, no, there's something more important than you not having to deal with that, namely learning that my grace is enough for every need, no matter how physically or emotionally painful it is. God's power is always enough for us, no matter how weak we are or feel. So here's a quote from Johnny Erickson Tata. I think we all want to listen when someone like Johnny talks about suffering. She's not an armchair quarterback writing from an ivory tower at a resort, at a beach. She writes from a wheelchair where she's been for 50 years now as a quadriplegic. And this is what she said. I have learned that the weaker we are, the harder we must lean on God. And the harder we lean on him, the stronger we discover him to be. That's what she learned after 50 years of being in a wheelchair. God's enough. God's strong enough. I'm not. I'm weak. That weakness drives me to lean on God. The more I lean on God, the more and more I see how strong he is. One more example would be David in Psalm 119. Psalm 119 Start at verse 67. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. 
now I keep your word. We sometimes sing the song, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. John Gill and others point out that when David says, I went astray, he does not mean willful, defiant disobedience, but careless, foolish straying off the right path. So think Christian and bypath metal just got off the path. It wasn't wickedly like, let's get off the right path. It was just, it went off. David says, the way God brought me back from straying to the right path was affliction. Trouble, trials, pain. I was going astray, affliction comes, I got back on the path. And then look at verse 71. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. Good for me. It was a way to learn God's word in a deeper way. So many of us wear glasses or contacts. Been wearing these since second grade. Not this pair, but like <laughs> glasses. In order to see what we would not see clearly with the eyes we were born with. And in a similar way, Affliction is a lens that helps us see things in God's word that we would not see clearly otherwise. There are just some verses, like my grace is sufficient for you. If you've never been afflicted, that verse means very little to you. But if you've been or are in an affliction, that verse is precious. Why? Because <laughs> affliction opens our eyes to see depths in the word that we wouldn't see otherwise. And so, in 75, here's a summary. I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. We sing, great is thy faithfulness. All I have needed, your hand has provided, including I needed affliction. I need it. Keeps me from going astray. It gives me a deeper understanding of the word. It keeps me to trust in God instead of myself. There's all these good things I need. And so it's good for me. It's God's faithfulness to me. It's beneficial. Some of you were around back a while ago when I had pretty big shoulder surgery. And I had 55 hours of physical therapy took most of those to get from being able to go like this. That was my range of motion after surgery. How about that? To go like this. That was such a big day. When I could touch the top of my head with my arm, with the shoulder, it was unbelievably triumph. It took a lot of physical therapy to get to that point. But I'll never forget the very first day I went to the clinic over where Target used to be, across the street. There was a sign, and it said, don't scream, it only encourages us. <laughs> I'm not making that up. <laughs> so think about going in there going, oh, okay. 
Now, if I would have thought, they're mean. They just want to hurt me. I would have just gone out the door. Forget this. I've already had enough pain with the injury and the surgery and all that. I don't need more pain. But I knew that the pain they were going to inflict on me, and they did, was for my good. So I could put my hand up here and do other things like a normal person with two arms can do. It was for my good. And in a similar way, we can know that any pain that God ordains for our lives is designed for our good. It's preventative medicine or corrective medicine or who knows what kind of medicine, but it's for the sake of our spiritual health and well-being. There's a quote from John Piper that says, God has at least a thousand reasons for everything he does, and we might guess a few of them. So you can be pretty sure, well, you can actually absolutely sure, one of the reasons God ordains everything, including any suffering or pain in my life, is for his glory. That's just a given in this universe. Everything is for God's glory. And then a second reason you can be very sure of, even though you might not guess how, is this is ultimately for my good. The other 998, you may or may not guess. But you can always be sure of those two. It's always for God's glory. It's always for our good. Well, as we close, we've seen that God in his mercy communicates with us, including through pain, to get our attention and to keep our souls from the pit of destruction. And if his message is getting through to you this morning, if he's waking you up this morning, acknowledge, I'm on the wrong path. Isaiah 53, 6 says, all we like sheep have gone astray. That means we left the right path and are on the wrong path. Each one of us has turned to his own way. So I want to go my way, not God's way. I want to go my way, not the right way. And that's all of us. We all start that way. And so we turn from going our own way and turn to going God's way. This is what Isaiah 55 says. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his ways and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. So we're going away from God and here's God inviting us, turn, turn back, come the right way, find mercy, find compassion, find forgiveness, find life. So we trust Christ alone to rescue us from sin. In verses 23 through 28, Elihu talks about a mediator, which is a go-between between two parties that are at odds, and a ransom, which is a price that is paid to set someone free, and a soul being redeemed from the pit and accepted by God. And I don't know how much Job or Elihu would have understood about those kind of words, but we know this side of the cross that that's ultimately accomplished through Jesus. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, There's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself a ransom for all. So Jesus is the one who ultimately is that go-between, who pays the price 
to set us free and bring us to God. Jesus died in the place of sinners. He paid the debt we owed because of our sin. God raised him from the dead like we just celebrated last Sunday to show that that debt was paid in full. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, rescued from sin and accepted by God now and forever. Let's pray. So Lord, thank you that you speak. Thank you that you speak through your word. Thank you that you tell us your merciful good intentions in our lives. You get our attention through suffering. Lord, your goal is not to hurt us, but to help us. Your goal is for our good and not our harm. And so, Lord, we thank you that you and your wisdom have such a plan, so beyond what we could have ever come up with as a plan for our well-being. You do all things well, Lord. We just bow and acknowledge that no matter how much pain we've experienced, we know you do all things well. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd give us more and more trust in you. Lord, help us to hang on to you and cling to you, uh, even when we don't understand what's going on, uh, that we would see you faithful, that we would discover how strong you really are. Again, I pray for anyone who's here who's never turned to you, still going away from you, still doing their own thing, heading for the pit of destruction. Lord, would you rescue them before it is too late? Bring them to the Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen. We're going to stand and sing, It is well with my soul.